So um, I know that most of you who are here right now were actually here this morning and I did a really lengthy introduction for Jim then and I do not want to uh, make you all listen to a repeat full performance. Uh, but for anybody who's new here and isn't familiar with Jim's biography and his credentials, I just wanted to share a few professional highlights. Um, he has a ton of practical experience. Jim and our team of legal experts have drafted nearly 3,000 wills and trusts. Our accounting firm prepares 760 tax returns every year. And in conjunction with our money management partners, our RIA oversees over 900 million in assets under management. Jim is a nationally recognized IRA, Roth IRA, and 401k expert, and his tax and estate planning strategies have been endorsed by the Wall Street Journal 36 times. He's been quoted in Newsweek, Forbes, Reader's Digest, Bottom Line, Money, Kiplinger's, just to name a few. And he's a paid contributor for Forbes.com, and his peer-reviewed articles have appeared in Trust and Estates Magazine and the Journal of Retirement Planning. Jim is also the author of eight best-selling books, including Retire Secure, which has been endorsed by a number of financial luminaries from Larry King and Charles Schwab to Burton Malkiel and Ed Slott. But one thing I really know about Jim is that he absolutely loves to answer audience questions, and I don't want to take up any more time doing anything besides letting him do that. So Jim, uh, do you want to get started with the first question from the pre-submitted questions? Okay. okay, great. So the first question uh, that we have from the ones that were submitted before the webinar is from Bill in New York. And this is a great question, but it's, it's quite lengthy. So he asks, for high net worth clients nearing retirement with assets in both Roth accounts and non-retirement brokerage accounts with large unrealized long-term capital gains for index funds with high tax efficiency, which do you prefer to draw from for retirement income to maximize family wealth considering stepped up basis at death, reduced estate unified tax credit, Secure Act forced Roth IRA distribution in 10 years in order to maximize estate and income taxes for both myself and, oh, sorry, minimize estate and income taxes for both myself and my children as heirs? Okay, um, let, let me get to the essence of this because it's a great question. <clears throat> and that is, and again, since I'm an attorney, I can take any question that I get and restate it into any other question. But, but the basic question is, let's say that for discussion's sake that you have three pots of money. You have Roth IRA money, you have IRA money, and you have, let's call it after-tax dollars, meaning money that you've already paid tax on, and this gentleman's question even goes further and says that your after-tax dollars are relatively highly appreciated, which means if you uh, want to use that pile of money to spend, you have to uh, sell some of those stocks, which are going to trigger a capital gain, and uh, that's going to make it less attractive than if they weren't highly appreciated. Okay, so here was the traditional answer, and then I'll tell you why I might be making an exception, uh, and particularly if you are higher net worth. All right. So what I've always said traditionally is, spend, is don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except the Roth. And for those of you who have known me, I've been saying that for, I hate to say it, but for 20 years. 
Don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except the Roth. Now applied in the accumulation stage, the distribution stage, and the estate planning stage. This is the distribution stage. And this is what I used to tell people subject to exception. Spend your after-tax dollars first, then spend your IRA dollars, then spend your Roth dollars. Now, we might not want to do that today because of the SECURE Act, because the SECURE Act is going to make our heirs pay income taxes um, within 10 years of our deaths on the inherited IRA and retirement plan. So in some circumstances, it makes sense to spend IRA money first. And particularly if you were here this morning, I talked about going from the taxable environment to the tax-free environment. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, the general rule still, plan still holds. Um, again, subject to exception for the SECURE Act. Now, I know what the gentleman's thinking. He said, oh, Jim, but I talked about <clears throat> what if you have um, highly appreciated do dollars, so shouldn't I spend my IRA first, wait for the step up in basis, and that way I'm going to have to pay tax or my heirs are going to have to pay tax anyway on the, uh, um, on the IRA, but if I die and we get the step up in basis, won't it work out better if I spend the IRA before my highly appreciated dollars It will trigger a capital gain when I uh, have to sell? And interestingly enough, we've actually looked at this these numbers very hard. And if you look in the distribution chapter of Retire Secure, which is our flagship book, interestingly, even the cap, even if you had to pay capital gains. Remember, you're, you're not paying tax on the whole thing. It's just on the appreciation. And uh, you're also not paying at ordinary rates. You're paying at capital gains rates. This, the general rule still held up. And here's the other thing, and depending on how old you are, if, if you're in your 50s or 60s, hey, guess what? The step up in basis rules are probably going to go away. So to preserve... The, these highly appreciated assets, hoping that you're going to die, get a step up in basis, and your kids pay no tax, uh, that might be more appropriate for somebody who's terminally ill or maybe in their late 80s or 90s. Maybe you might, <laughs> I hate to say it, be lucky enough to die before they change the law. For the vast majority of people uh, on this webinar right now, I'm pretty sure they're going to change the law before, uh, before you pass. <clears throat> so I wouldn't get all that excited about preserving the highly appreciated assets. So that is my, my general rule. Again, sometimes it's going to make some sense to spend the IRA money first, depending on tax bracket. But if that's the case, it probably makes more sense to do Roth IRA conversions. So I hope that that helps. But in summary, uh, subject to exception, first spend your after-tax dollars, then spend your IRA dollars, <sighs> and then spend your Roth IRA dollars last. If, again, there are some exceptions. Sometimes you might want to spend some, um, some Roth dollars to stay within a certain tax bracket, et cetera, et cetera. But the Roths, I really like letting go for a long time. Uh, I think I, if you've heard me before, uh, you might know that when my wife and I, in 1998, when our office suffered a fire, and my income was way down that year, my wife and I made a $249,000 conversion. 
And our plan uh, for that money is for us to never touch it for the rest of our lives. And then when we die, it will go to our daughter and um, possibly even, uh, actually under the new law, um, it'll have to come out in 10 years. But anyway, let, let's, we were in our 40s at the time. Let's say that we live 40, 50 years and another 10 years on top of that. The tax-free growth of that Roth for 50 years is going to be so substantial. Now, most of you are older than that. You're not going to get that many years out of it. But it's so substantial that that will most likely overshadow some, let's say, short-term benefits of spending Roth. Again, the official answer is you have to run the numbers. Everybody has a different situation, but hopefully that is a general uh, answer to a very good question. And the differences, by the way, between optimizing which dollars you spend first, even forgetting the investment issues, and by the way, IRA dollars should be invested differently than Roth IRA dollars, which should be invested differently than after-tax dollars, um, but even not taking that into account, the differences can literally be, even starting at age 65, and again, I analyzed this in Retire Secure, and I remember the differences of which dollars you spend first ended up being differences of hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime, even forgetting your heirs. So it's important. It's an important question. I would say a lot of clients botch this, and a lot of clients, even smart people, they kind of, who haven't really run the numbers like we have, their gut instincts are telling them the wrong thing. So one guy wanted to take Social Security early because he didn't want to have to go into highly appreciated assets. And I'm like, no, no, no. And I know that he didn't believe me just when we were speaking, but he is data-driven. So we're going to say, okay, let's try it your way. And in this case, he... he <clears throat> he will hold off on his social security so he doesn't have to cash in his highly appreciated assets. And another way, well, all right, let's say you wait till you're 70 and let's say given a, a normal life expectancy or longer, um, we can show him mathematically why there is a better course. Anyway, long answer to a good question, but it's important. And I'd say a lot of people get this wrong. Okay. Great. I was trying to anticipate when you were finished with that answer. And the first time you said long answer to a short question, I turned my video back on only to have to turn it back off because that's just how thorough you are when you answer a question. You're going to be very thorough. That was a great answer. Someone so, verbose, um, one of the two. <laughs> no, but verbose is awesome. So that's what people come for, like the really thought out answers. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why we have so many people that come back for, you know, every Q&A. So I did mention that we had a lot of leftover questions from this morning. So I wanted to take one from the live room from this morning. So Ching asked, uh, why is it urgent to do the Roth conversion by the end of this year? The tax proposal has been to allow Roth conversions until 2031. All right, well, there's two, there's two issues. One, I would agree with her for, and, and by the way, the tax proposal as it stands now, which is not law, what she's referring to is people with incomes of, and right now it's saying $400,000, will not be allowed to make a Roth conversion 
<clears throat> starting the year 2031, I think the government has figured out that <clears throat> that people who are smart about Roth conversions are literally generating tax-free empires for themselves and their families at the expense of the IRS, and they want to get away from that, but they don't want to, <laughs> they like the money coming in from doing the conversions. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll do it in 10 years. Um, but there's still some urgency because if that does happen, high income taxpayers are going to have a certain limit, limit of time. The really urgent people are the people who have after-tax dollars inside their IRAs or their retirement plans because the current proposal, which we think is actually going to pass, is that you will no longer be able to make an after-tax to a Roth conversion without having to pay the tax after December 31, 2000, um, 20, 2021, which means if you don't get it done in the next month, you're going to lose it. And it can literally be the difference of a couple hundred, even if you had just like $50,000, if you run this out over your life and the life of your kids, it can be a difference of a couple hundred thousand dollars. So that is urgent. Um, we actually, I, did, I, I actually wrote uh, an email that's probably going to go out Thursday on that. And I've actually circulated that to some of my guru IRA expert, and they, they do agree with me. If you have after-tax dollars inside an IRA or inside a retirement plan, and I gave you resources uh, for information, both the Roth Revolution has a chapter on that, um, and then I also gave, um, and then then it was Internal Revenue Service 19 or 2014 SAS slash something or other that goes directly from the employers uh, or even a personal 401k to Roth direct, you only have till December 31 to do that. And if you don't, you might've missed a couple hundred thousand dollar opportunity. So of course, everybody wants to say, oh no, you have to do it now, you have to do it now. This is not the boy who cried wolf. You have to, if you want that to happen, uh, I'm pretty convinced that that law is gonna happen and it's gonna happen retroactively, but, if you get it in, let's say within this month, by the way, nothing new. If you've been following me, I've been wanting people to do this for years. And I wrote a, an article on this, I think either 98 or 99. And we proposed how you could get around it, uh, which, I'm, I, which I skipped today because it doesn't apply to that many people, but very cool stuff. So that's the urgent part. And the other ur natural urgency is the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 kicks in in 2026. So in just a couple of years, the income brackets, are, unless something else happens, are going to go way up. So it's better to, to do your conversions when the income brackets are down and to oversimplify a lot of our clients who are now in the 24% bracket are going to be the 33% bracket in 2026 and just gut instinct, which the math and the numbers and the calculations that we make would indicate, hey, we, we're only going to have a couple years of these lower rates and we might as well do, do them. And I usually don't recommend big, huge conversions, but chunks at a time. So you want to take advantage of every year, and particularly if you're between, let's say you're less than 72, um, but you're not working anymore and your income is down. 
uh, yeah, there's some urgency. And I think another question, maybe I'm stealing Erica's thunder, but um, I, I read some of the questions, obviously not the ones that are submitted today, um, was what is the deadline for making a Roth IRA conversion to be effective uh, for 2021 tax year? And the deadline is December 31, 2021. And the mechanics of doing the conversion sometimes take a couple weeks. Um, so maybe your deadline is closer to two weeks. Um, so anyway, that is the urgency. That's not something I'm making up and saying urgent, urgent, urgent when it's not. It, it, it is. Okay, ready for the next one. Absolutely. So the next question, I'm going to take one of the uh, ones that was submitted before the webinar. This one is from Mary in Pittsburgh. And she asks, she says, our house is paid off. Should it be titled in the name of our trust so that it does not go through probate? It is currently in my husband's and my name's. It's worth $600,000 plus. Well, first, first I'm going to answer the general question, and then I'm going to answer Mary's question. So let's assume for discussion's sake that your estate plan involves revocable trusts. And the point of a revocable trust, so we're going to be talking about at length tomorrow between 10 and 12 Eastern, and we're going to talk about the ideal estate plan. Um, but part of it is often doing revocable trust, and the point of a revocable trust is to avoid probate. So let's say you're in one of many, many places, and uh, let's say the estate attorney has drafted these revocable trusts. And what a lot of people do, and frankly, I blame the attorneys a lot on this, is they draft these trusts and they don't bother funding them. Now, you also do something called a pour over will. The pour over will says, if I have any assets that were, um, that were inadvertently not transferred to the trust, then I leave it to the trust. But if you think about that, so let's say for this house, it's a $600,000 house and it's jointly owned between husband and wife. And at the first death by operation of law, it goes to the survivor. So that's not a probate asset. But at the second death, let's say that it's a typical situation, it goes to the kids equally. Well, the way it stands now, it's not a probate asset. So it would have to go uh, through probate which might involve time, aggravation, fees, et cetera, to get to the kids. So most people probably should transfer that if they have a joint revocable trust uh, to the joint revocable trust. Now, let me tell you a little trap in Pittsburgh, because that's, that's, that's where my office is and that's where, that's my base of operations, if you will, and we've done um, now we are national practice because of the pandemic and we're talking to people all over the country. But for many years, it was mainly Western Pennsylvania and then maybe some people nationally uh, who heard me through the radio show or books, or et cetera. But anyway, Pittsburgh, they kind of snuck up on us. And it's, to me, it's a really lousy interpretation. But if you look at the if you're going to be technical about it and you look at the transfer tax rules in Pittsburgh, normally when you buy and sell a house, there's transfer tax. Normally, when you take a house that you or you and your spouse own and you transfer that to a joint revocable trust, you're not really changing 
ownerships or the legal situation. And in my opinion, that should not be subject to a transfer tax. Um, but the city of Pittsburgh doesn't agree with me. So Mary, for you, it might just be better to go through probate than to suffer that transfer tax. Um, for most people, however, and you, you want to check with, with a local estate, estate or property attorney to see if there is a transfer tax. For most people, you do want to get your house into the revocable trust because the revocable trust, it has all kinds of what ifs, if assuming it is well drafted, where some people try to avoid probate by doing paid on death or trust on death accounts, which we're really not a big fan of. We like the what if, what if this guy's dead, what if that guy woman's dead, what if the kid is this, and we can get all that in in a revocable trust. So normally I like the revocable trust idea, but I have to admit in Pittsburgh, uh, because of that transfer tax, and I'm a cheapskate, nobody likes paying transfer tax, and to me, the burden of the transfer tax that you have to pay up front is worse than the aggravation of going through probate. Um, but if you, don't if you don't have to pay a transfer tax, then it is worth the aggravation to get that into your revocable trust. Hope that helps. Thanks, Jim. So the next question is actually the first question that we got today from the live room. And I don't want to, I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to encourage people. If you have questions, if you're thinking of them now, please add them to the chat. Jim really looks forward to questions from the live room too. We have a lot of other ones, but please, if you have them, just add them to the chat and Brian will add them to my document. So this is the first question from the live room from this webinar, Jim. It's from Sarah and she asks, are there times when the person with the lower social security income in the couple should take their social security before age 70? Yeah, so, so my big thing about social security is that the person with the higher um, working record wait until 70. So just as a quick reminder, um, if you're, let's say for retirement age, which depending on what year you're born, um, but let's just say the relevant for retirement ages, I think it's something like 66 and nine months or something like that. That's when you get 100% of your benefit. So if you take it early, it's much less than 100%. But for every year that you wait between 66 and nine months until 70, you get an 8% raise. So if you're waiting four more years, you're getting a 32% um, increase. Now, you're not only getting that for yourself, but then assuming you are married, and, and it doesn't matter which spouse dies first, um, and there's some restrictions, but the, the survivor will get the higher of the two benefits. So to me, for the high income earner or somebody who has a better record, earnings record for the purposes of collecting Social Security, I want them to, even if they're in bad health and they expect to die soon, I want them to hold off until age 70. And the other thing is people say, well, gee, I'm not sure when I'm going to die. You know, and let's say that the quote break even is age 82. And, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to die before or after that. And, but remember, all we need is one person to live past age, age 82 for, let's call it the actuary to be happy. 
um, and have it work out. But here's the other lesson that I learned from Larry Kotlikoff. And I actually learned this live. That was one of the great things of the radio show. I got the top experts in the country. And he, and he said this live right on the radio. Um, he said, and he didn't even call me Jim. He said, Lang, quit thinking like an actuary. Think like an economist. If you die before, let's say, age 82, and even your spouse dies before age 82, you're dead. And dead people don't have financial problems. What you want to do is to cover the event, not that you die early, but that you live a long time because the legitimate financial fear is not having sufficient income later in life and holding off on Social Security uh, often does, uh, does protect against that. All right, now getting back to the question, should the financially weaker spouse uh, start taking Social Security. And there's lots of nuances. Uh, I will say before 66 and two-thirds or, or nine months, I guess that's three-quarters, isn't it? Um, probably not, because they're not going to get a full spousal benefit when your spouse dies, and you might not get a spousal benefit, which is 50% of the amount that your spouse would have received when he was 66. Interestingly, sometimes it makes sense, depending on when you were born, for the spouse with the higher record to collect on the spouse with the lower earnings record. Um, it's a little bit nuanced, but I think, and I don't know if we have free, free bonuses for this one or not, um, and I don't, I don't want to put Brian on the spot, but for whatever it's worth, I do go through that in pretty good uh, depth in the book, the $214,000 mistake, and it's something like, I forget what, I shouldn't remember exactly what it's called, but maximizing your social security. Um, and then we also tie in uh, social security and Roth IRA conversions because I can't help myself, but I believe that that's a synergistic um, calculation because if you hold off on social security, that means you can put even more money in Roth IRA conversions at lower tax brackets. So I hope, I hope that helps. Um, and why don't we move on to the next one?